Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Avoiding Armageddon from the Great War to the Fall of France, 1918 to 1940, talks to the critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about the state and preparedness of Britain's armed forces in the lead up to the Second World War. Professor Jeremy Black, in 1919, the size of the British armed forces was vast, even if demobilisation had begun. And yet Germany had uh, not only been defeated, the Treaty of Versailles uh, really removed it or seemingly removed it as a significant military threat. Who did the military planners and the politicians imagine that Britain might be fighting on a major scale in in the following 10 years or or more? Well, in in the immediate short term, Britain was, of course, already engaged in a whole host of military activities. She was a participant, a major participant in the Russian Civil War. Um, She had uh, occupation obligations in Germany. Um, And she had to help, as it were, bed in her new territories um, in the expanded empire, uh, particularly in the Middle East. So she had a host of military commitments, um, and that remained the case. Um, And of course, the great difficulty is, as you indicate, that um, whereas during World War I, the task was focused, Um, thereafter there was a range of actual and potential um, combatants, uh, whilst at the same time the government had to cope with the enormous uh, financial uh, fiscal overhang of the recent World War. Was there a um, belief that conscription had to be ended almost immediately, or was it wound down over a period? What sort of soldiers made up the the army uh, between about um, 1919 and 1922? Oh, conscription went, I mean, not as quickly as people wanted, and that was one of the reasons, for example, for disaffection, indeed, near mutiny. Um, For for instance, um, on the Baltic fleet, uh, taking part in the uh, Russian Civil War, but nevertheless, uh, the, the trend, I mean, demobilization is not an easy thing. You can't just press a button and release uh, millions of people, but demobilization was uh, more um, rapid than after World War II. There's obviously, there's uh, uh, trouble in, in Ireland as um, you know, home rule is being implicated, uh, the, the war of independence, um, which then after uh, um, partition turns into the uh, uh, Irish Civil War. But uh, there, there is that, there is, as you mentioned, the Russian Civil War. Is there a belief that the, the future of warfare might be um, not just colonial, but ideological, and that the Russian Revolution, followed by unrest and, and many revolutions in Eastern Europe, is probably where 
the Britain's armed forces are going to be drawn into a into an ideological conflict with 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 the Bolsheviks, or is or is there the view that Bolshevism can't last and uh, uh, traditional enemies will reemerge? Um, again, that's an excellent question. I mean, what I would say is that um, the commitment uh, to intervene in Russia. Um, is in part to do with the struggle against Bolshevism, but in part it's to do with the, a great, as with the French Revolution of, from 1793 onwards, a concern about um, the expansionism of that regime. I mean, remember, Lenin and the Bolshevik leaders had no sense, no more than their follow, uh, supporters did in, in, in elsewhere in Europe, that there should be a necessary limit. And it's worth bearing in mind that there was the Belakun regime took over in Hungary, um, that uh, Bolshevik forces um, invaded uh, Poland. Um, there was absolutely no sense that this would necessarily be limited. And I notice uh, in the Times today, uh, the review of yet another book on um, appeasement and the background of World War II, which argues that the, uh, the British were at fault for, as it were, seeing um, the Soviet Union as a threat. Well, <laughs> Um, let's leave aside what you would have felt if you were dragged off um, as a result of Soviet occupation, conquest of Eastern Poland, of Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Estonia um, in 1939-1940, dragged off to the gulags or just summarily killed, um, you would have found these modern academics sitting there in, in their comfort rather um, I think disgusting actually, um, but certainly if you're looking at it from the perspective of 1919-1920, um, there is no sense that there is necessarily going to be a limitation of what happens. And as you may know, I, I did a book on the Cold War and I began the Cold War with the point that it was very hot in its initial stages. And those initial stages began um, in the late uh, 19 teens. Uh, the First World War has been a period of extraordinary advance in technology, uh, perhaps most obviously the development of the tank, uh, but also, of course, in aircraft. Is there a view that uh, what has now become the REF is the new wonder weapon in Britain's armed forces and that you know, colonial policing can be done cheaply from the air. There's no longer the need for the same number of troop deployments on or, you know, boots on the ground, as we as we now call it. Or uh, what is the uh, what, what what is the feeling about about the REF? Well, I mean, as shouldn't surprise us from the present perspective of com of contests between the various services for military expenditure at the moment, and not just in Britain, in other states as well. There were differences of opinion um, in the 1920s as to what should, be, and indeed the 1930s, as to what should be the prime um, area of military uh, expenditure. Um, there was, as you correctly say, 
um, some advocates of the idea that imperial policing could be done more effectively by the use in large part of air power. Um, the, uh, you know, the cooperation of the uh, RAF's 12 DH-9s in the uh, operations in Somaliland, Somaliland British Somaliland, um, in uh, 1920 were very important and helped to encourage a sense that um, the British could play a major role in imperial policing. I mean, Trenchard used that success, that success it, the policy was applied uh, in Iraq and around the Arabian Peninsula in the 1920s. But I think it's worth saying that others, you know, were not so sanguine. I mean, um, I, I, I suggested, I, you, I don't know if you recall, that you look at my book, Avoiding Armageddon, which was the interwar period of um, uh, military development. And in that, I cite from the archives a report by the General Staff of the British Forces in Iraq from 1922, which said, aeroplanes by themselves are unable to compel the surrender or defeat of hostile tribes. And I, mean, I think you can uh, fairly say that uh, even far more effective air power in the modern day similarly has those issues and problems. So yes, there were air power exponents as there were at sea. I mean, people who very much argued that Britain should focus on developing aircraft carriers. Um, but there were others who were not so uh, uh, optimistic and more particularly who argued, and I think the, it's the either or is never completely helpful, it can be helpful, but there were others who argued that air power had a role within a wide spectrum of military capability, um, which is indeed still the case, um, rather than being a wonder weapon of its own. And I think that's a, a perfectly reasonable assessment. When did the focus become predominantly on uh, heavier bombers? There's the famous um, uh, speech that Stanley Baldwin delivers in the House of Commons in 1932, when he, he uh, says, the bomber will always get through, the only defence is offence. Um, uh, was he articulating a, uh, an opinion in strategic circles, which had become a commonplace, or was he really driving British defence policy in a new way, away from lighter aircraft, lighter and, and fighters, and, and towards the very heavy aircraft that he, in later developments became the core of Bomber Command? Well, that's again interesting. I mean, a lot of the innovations that um, enable one to use uh, the kind of bombers, the effective all-metal four-engine monoplane bombers, for example, of which the first effective one is the B-17, the American Flying Fortress, a lot of those innovations take a time to develop. Um, air power and the capacity of air power in terms of the specifications of aircraft, as opposed to the uh, uh, as opposed to what's going to happen when you've delivered your bombs in terms of the impact on civilians and, and other societies. Um, air power changes quite radically in the 1920s and 1930s in all sorts of respects, including um, uh, bomb loads, um, flying speed, flying height, um, airframe, aero engines, all of those change. And as you will know, a number of new planes enter British service in the late uh, 1930s, 
um, the Wellington first flying in December 37, and that's to be the key role in bomber command until the arrival of the four-engine bomber. But the Air Force is not particularly useful if what you see, uh, and heavy bombers aren't particularly useful, if what you see is your likely um, major potential opponent is, say, Japan, which uh, was the more active of the uh, um, powers trying to um, revise, revisionist powers revise the international system in the early 1930s. So again, partly what one's got is a question of, you know, what priorities emerge? I mean, what very much struck me reading um, the British planning documents in the 1920s and 1930s is the difficulty of what um, I've called in a number of my books tasking, or you might call it strategic culture, um, in the sense that there are a number of potential opponents. It's by not, no means clear which will come to the fore, which will come to fruition. And there are different force structures that might be necessary to confront them. So um, let us say Britain goes to war with Japan over the future of China in the uh, mid to late 1930s, um, then there is no way that the British have the capability to mount uh, long-range bombing missions against Japan. And had the investment been preponderantly in those, it would have been a fruitless investment. So I think you've got to be very careful of assuming, I mean, Baldwin in some respects is voicing a view frequently held in the 1920s and indeed uh, voiced before World War I, including by Lord Northcliffe, what are called air panics. And as you may know, there's a good literature on this. Um, and um, in a sense, it appeared self-evident because the developments of the late 1930s in terms of improved fighters and the investment, uh, the development of radar technology and the investment in radar systems, which are to help negate what bombers can do, or at least to affect their, um, their capability ability aren't there in 1932. On the other hand, to an extent, it's based on a problematic reading of the very capability of bombers even in 1932. And it's worth bearing in mind that um, uh, the Luftwaffe, of course, was able to launch large-scale bombing attacks on Britain in 1940-41 and did an enormous amount of damage, uh, but it didn't lead to the end of the war, nor did it actually appreciably dislocate the British war economy. I'm wondering uh, to what extent um, the balance of investment begins to shift back towards fighter planes in the uh, two, three years before the outbreak of the Second World War. I wonder to what extent that is driven simply by technological advances. I mean, obviously the development of the hurricane and the Spitfire, um, and uh, as you say, radar is, is as well, or, or whether there is also a political directive, a sense that actually defending the homeland is going to require fighters. 
Um, oh, no, 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 they're also, they're also, I mean, that's true, but they're also developing bombers. I mean, the Air Ministry had issued specifications for a four-engine bomber in July uh, 1936, and then for a two-twin-engined all-metal medium-heavy bomber, and they were go on, going on making these, I mean, developing these. Um, they're trying, I mean, the, you know, um, there is, as you know, an enormous amount of um, criticism of uh, British governments of that period. I think uh, a lot of that criticism tells you more about the present day than it tells you about the 1930s, but it's worth bearing in mind um, that in the late 1930s, Britain is investing very heavily in new uh, military capability um, and includes both bombers and fighters. Um, and also it includes, for example, at sea, um, new um, ships, both uh, warships, both um, uh, aircraft carriers and indeed non-aircraft carriers. So it's a fairly wide ranging capability that the British are, are attempting in order to remain uh, the leading naval power in in the world and to remain at the cutting edge as an air power. The problem is not that they're not spending money. The problem is in 1941, um, uh, 4041, that what they'd hoped, which is um, sequential warfare against, um, you know, uh, enemies fighting separately, in fact goes wrong and um, they end up fighting you know, a number of powers at once. And let us be clear about this. A lot of, there is a lot of criticism of the British government of the 1930s at the present time. I think it's worth bearing in mind um, that were Britain at the present moment to find itself at war uh, with Russia, China and Iran or Turkey, um, the situation would look less sanguine if we were to um, ask, well, why weren't we prepared for all of that at once now? Um, and the there are real practical problems. I mean, I read, I remember a rather good Oxford doctorate of the 1990s by a chap called Massam on uh, British amphibious doctrine in the 1930s. And um, he was looking at you know, the, pre the preparation for amphibious warfare. And he was making the point that this was really quite a, a minor role in, in Britain. And, you know, but he was an intelligent writer. And as he pointed out, um, the prospect was not that if Britain went to war with, let us say, Germany, it would be having to mount the equivalent of D-Day. The expectation was that Britain would fight as an ally as France, and that therefore there would be a um, satisfactory uh, deployment of troops uh, through French ports, as indeed happened in 1939, and not an attack on a contested uh, landmass. And of course, in, in 1939, if Britain had gone to war with Germany, um, as it in fact did, uh, but you know, if they were planning for that prior to that, there were no German colony, overseas colonies to attack as there had been in World War I, and therefore no reason to anticipate the equivalent of the am amphibious assault on uh, Vichy-ruled Madagascar in 1942. And I think 
that this need to understand tasking is a significant one. I mean, I don't like directing people simply to my books because other people write important books as well. Uh, but as you know, I've got a book coming out on strategy in World War II. And um, I think that what I've tried to underline there is the strategic uncertainty uh, in the war until the end really of 1941. I mean, there remain strategic uncertainties thereafter, whether the Soviet Union and Germany would do a deal in 42 or 43, whether the Soviet Union will come in against Japan. You know, there are strategic uncertainties, but primarily the, set, the, the sides are set or they're set for a while at the end of 41. But prior to that, that wasn't true. And that remains a continuity that stretches back through the 30s and 20s. Well, I'm intrigued about the nature of the continental commitment. Um, to quote Stanley Baldwin again in the House of Commons, who's saying that in, in the defence of England, you, you no longer think of the, uh, the cliff chalks of Dover, you think of the Rhine. Uh, so th this is very much a kind of forward line of strategy, but of course dependent in large part on the French army and the French forces more generally. Uh, to be in cooperation. And yet there doesn't seem to be uh, high-level strategic talks with France, uh, either through the 20s or in the first half of the 30s. In fact, military conversations don't really uh, kick off between the, the senior general staff until you know, really months before the Second World War breaks out. What, 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 what was the thinking there? Was there actually a lot more even formal understanding and conversations going on than perhaps we, we give credit for? Well, I think, um, yes, I mean, the British and the, uh, and the French tried to produce um, a joint policy on a number of things, including um, how best to respond uh, to Italian policy uh, towards Abyssinia. Um, um, how far to, how best to respond to the um, Spanish Civil War. So yes, I would say that there was, uh, there were discussions. I mean, remember, it's by now, you know, just underlining the previous point I've made, it's by no means clear what conflict is going to ensue. And um, powers that you might see as allies in one sphere are not necessarily going to be allies in another sphere, um, which might be more to the fore at that point. Um, France was not, not particularly interested in playing a major role in restraining Japanese expansionism, for example. So I think you've got to very much put it in a multilateral rather than a bilateral context. Well, um, uh, talking about Japan brings us uh, to um, uh, the Royal Navy. This very large investment goes in in uh, enforcing the Singapore naval base uh, against which the only really plausible enemy can be Japan. Um, how seriously were particularly the naval planners in recognizing that, that Japan, which of course had been an ally in the First World War, was a, a likely hostile force in, Asia, in the Asia-Pacific theater. Oh, the British and, and indeed the Americans 
um, were very well aware of the uh, danger after the breakdown of relations in the early 1920s and after the growing militarism of Japan in the early 1930s. Um, the question was, um, you know, how to, uh, you know, how to uh, respond. I mean, for example, you get 1934, you get the minister is divided. The Treasury is arguing that um, there shouldn't be a fleet sent to the Far East and the focus should be on Germany, whereas the Admiralty and the Dominions Office are both arguing that that's unacceptable, that Japan is a threat, including to Australia and New, and New Zealand. Um, but the Admiralty is arguing that in order to be effective, they need cooperation with the Americans and the Americans are wary about that. So, you know, you've got all sorts of issues. And as I said, I mean, you know, we're discussing this listeners benefit on, fr on the Friday of the G7 meetings in Cornwall. I think you would find that if you were President Biden, and you were attempting to persuade your German allies that they should be more robust about China, uh, they would be saying to you, well, we don't see it as necessarily a, you know, a threat, uh, or we don't see it as a present threat. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I think that people need to be aware. I mean, they, they it often seems to me that people are extraordinarily naive when they look at history. They don't, they seem to assume that what was going to happen was obvious, and that therefore, um, uh, people should have acted in certain ways. And this kind of what, you know, I, I've written on counterfactualism. This is a very naive form of counterfactualism. It really is. Um, counterfactualism to be effective has to allow for uncertainty uh, in the past. And by by closing down that uncertainty, I think one, one you know, is hitting problems, hitting issues. Um, but you're correct, the Admiralty is very well aware of the challenge posed by um, Japan. It's just not at all sure how best to respond uh, to it. Um, and, you know, it's not, um, it's not clear that they would ne they were necessarily wrong. Um, you know, the, um, you, if you're thinking about it, if you're a general dealing with what Britain is actually having to fight in the end of 1938. I mean, the British are fighting the, um, the Waziristan campaign on the Northwest Frontier, very large commitment of troops are involved. The British are fighting the Arab rising in Palestine, what we would now call Israel or the West Bank. Again, a very large number of commitment of troops are involved. To have said to them, ah, um, you know, what we shouldn't do, we shouldn't deal at all with these imperial challenges. It's obviously the case that Germany is going to be the enemy. It's obviously the case that the Soviet Union is going to ally with Germany um, and that therefore the Germans don't have to fear a two front uh, war. Well, you know, that might be obvious to you now. It was not obvious to people um, at the time. Yes, well, hindsight's so a wonderful thing, isn't it? Uh, the, the Admiralty has to cut its cloth during a period of retrenchment and, and make hard choices as to what it's going to invest in. Um, since 1889, there had been the, the two-power standard, which uh, uh, set the presumption that the Royal Navy would be at least the size of the next two largest navies. In the 1920s, that, that's abandoned, so that, in effect, the Royal Navy 
doesn't become smaller than the um, the U.S. Navy. Well, you know, this is, of course, because of treaties that the British have signed. I mean, you know, the British are, uh, I mean, the British are operating within an international system. The Washington Naval Treaty had agreed a 553 ratio in capital ship tonnage um, between, you know, Britain, the United States and Japan, with the quotas for France and Italy being 35% of the capital ton tonnage of Britain. So Britain can't just simply ignore that. You know, uh, it still left the British with a significant, uh, uh, a significant navy, um, and uh, the you could argue um, that the Washington uh, Naval Treaty is in part a um, a uh, attempt to stabilize a situation which is difficult for Britain because of the major American naval building program. From World War One, which is based on the strength of the American Navy, American economy. Um, so, you know, within the context, the British are doing pretty well. They're thinking about how best to respond to new technology. They have very, very different uh, requirements for aircraft carriers than the um, than the um, Americans and the Japanese. Um, the British, as you may know, have armoured deck carriers, um, but which are but have a smaller capacity for carrying aircraft than the American wooden deckers. The Americans want to tackle the great spaces of the Pacific. The British want to use their carriers primarily in European waters. Um, but, you know, one would be wrong to say that uh, the British are doing nothing. I mean, in 1935, the Ark Royal is uh, laid down. Um, in 1937, four carriers of the illustrious class are laid down. So the British are, are, are taking part in improvements to their military. But again, it's very unclear what tasks they are going to have to, to make. I mean, I, I quote in one of my books, a general staff report, in which says, taking the long view, it is unquestionable that what the British Empire has most reason to fear in the future is a Russo-German combination. Well, I think that probably was, was accurate and certainly appeared to be clear in 1940 to 41. But, you know, um, it's not very clear if you're up against a Russo-German combination, how best you are supposed to tackle that. Um, the, um, there's a rather idiotic book which has recently come out saying the British should have sent sort of aircraft carriers and navies to the White Sea. Well, it's really beyond uh, the um, easy navigational and certainly logistical capability to have done that. Um, but, you know, the, they are trying in a difficult context and with many competing calls on the nation's finances to cope. We are doing less well. I mean, let's be blunt about this. We are doing less well. We are more concerned at the present moment by COVID than we are about a challenging and difficult international situation. So it doesn't really, you know, fit us 
to make cast critical remarks. It's entirely reasonable to discuss what they're doing, but to do so from any situation of suggesting that we, as it were, I mean, you use the term hindsight, I and mean, that's a good term, but I would actually take it further. There is often a sort of sense of almost moral superiority. You know, we obviously should have been fighting A or B. Well, the Third Reich was a vile and unpleasant regime. Its destruction was absolutely necessary. But that does not mean that we would have been able to have won widespread support for a proactive war of conquest against Germany uh, before the Germans acted as they did. It would have been difficult to introduce conscription in Britain without a sense of present emergency. It would have been difficult, uh, given that the world's major power, uh, the United States, the world's leading economy, was the main appeaser. It was willing to do absolutely nothing. Um, and indeed, it, it was quite clear, particularly in the case of Canada, that the dominions were not necessarily going to follow Britain into a war in this respect. Uh, the Canadians didn't want to go to war over Munich, just as they hadn't wanted to go to war with Turkey in the Chanak crisis. And the Australians and New Zealanders, understandably so, were most concerned about Japan. So I think there's an enormous amount of naivety. People move from a, you know, talking about what is clearly a vile regime, the German regime, worth bearing in mind the Soviet regime was not exactly uh, much, you know, pleasanter, um, you know, but they moved from talking about a vile regime to then saying we should have done X or Y without any sense of practicalities. And I think in often the most foolish of fashions, and yet books of this type seem to get published published all the time. And, you know, um, it reminds me of what a distinguished naval historian once said to me about Atlantic history, that Atlantic history is history with the Atlantic left out. In other words, scholars writing about it, not having the faintest idea of the capability or otherwise of wooden warships. Well, I'd like to say the same. I've recently in a book review referred to naive academics talking about international relations as if they were playing a game of risk. Um, I might also add that most of them seem to have not the faintest idea of what military equipment could achieve and what uh, and the way in which when you start a war you may actually be embracing knowingly uh, going into a course of action which you are unlikely to do terribly well at and that that can encourage enormous caution. So I think that uh, there are real practical problems when we're discussing uh, this period, and we need to put those problems much more to the fore. Um, and I'm, I'm very troubled by um, some of the work that's been produced on the military um, uh, uh, situation, because a lot of it does not sufficiently engage with um, this, this problem of multiple commitments. Yes, well, you, you mentioned a moment ago uh, equipment, uh, and I'd like to turn from the, you know, the strategy of having uh, uh, you know, multiple potential theatres in which you have to fight in and, and to have a sense of priority. I want to just talk about equipment for a little bit, uh, equipment across the, the three different branches of the armed services. How uh, did Britain fare, particularly compared to its, its main um, competitors in terms of driving innovation. How well armed were the, the British armed forces by, by the, the latter years of the 1930s? 
Um, I think that in, in the sense of uh, air power, they're doing pretty well if you include the fact that they're trying to embrace uh, both up-to-date bombers and up-to-date fighters and also are developing radar. Uh, as we know, the benefit of hindsight, underlying hindsight, uh, they could have done more with jet aircraft. And the aerial defence system for London in 1940 proved very weak in some respects. Uh, the night fighters weren't particularly good. Um, I'm not, by the way, aspurging anybody who served in that, but I'm just simply saying they weren't particularly good. Um, and the anti-aircraft fire didn't really inflict much damage. So there would, was room for improvement, um, but it was a better rounded air force than the German air force, which in 1940 proved not to have um, a heavy bomber capability and never really gained one. Uh, British aero engines in particular were better than German aero engines. In the case of the Navy, the British were investing in uh, pretty good aircraft carriers. Um, they weren't to anticipate the major shock of the loss of France as an ally, and France had some pretty modern ships, and the combination of the challenge from the other three, uh, you know, Germany, uh, Italy, and Japan, and particularly um, the, the, you know, the challenge in the Mediterranean of German air power in support of the Italians. On the other hand, the British Navy did extremely well in 1940 and 41. Um, until obviously the debacle at the hands of the Japanese, but the British Navy did very well in the Mediterranean. Um, and they were able in home waters to, and Atlantic waters, to stop uh, the German surface fleet. So I think the British did well as a Navy. Um, army, it's difficult to say. The army had the problem for an army, it's exactly the same problem as you have today. An army is very much called upon to operate in different terrains and environments. So, for, for instance, the uh, British forces in Southern Asia uh, were used to fighting on the Northwest frontier. Um, it was a very different terrain and cover and uh, up against a very different assailant fighting against the Japanese in Malaya and Burma. Now, you could um, criticize um, that if you like um, and clearly the British command let people down there's no two ways about that and uh, it's the classic instance of um, the um, some of the people promoted in peacetime weren't up to it in wartime which is a problem all militaries faced and all militaries face and problem all, all institutions face um, but the uh, I think the the issue of were they necessarily worse than other powers, I think it's very problematic because it depends upon, as it were, how you measure particular, particular tasks. Um, the after action reports were not uh, favorable for Norway in 1940, uh, Orkinlex report, which I quote in one of my uh, pieces. Um, and um, I don't think the British, although some of their individual units did well, particularly some of the artillery did well in the 
um, fighting in um, on the Western Front in 1940. Other units did not do so well. But again, the same thing is true of the German army and the Wehrmacht. Some units did much better than others. Um, and one of the great difficulties is when you have, and you see this with the work of Max Hastings, for example, an attempt to provide, as it were, an aggregate score um, for an army that might have, you know, in the case of the the Germans, numbers vary, but if you're thinking of roughly 200 divisions, uh, it, obviously this is not a, a particularly brilliant exercise. Um, the, no, I mean, I'm struck, I mean, I'm primarily interested in strategy. I'm struck by the strategic difficulty of the tasks faced by the British in the late 1930s um, in trying to be um, a power operating around the world and in defense of existing interests, including the existing system of international relations around the world in the face of a number of revisionist powers. I think the, you know, there are obviously uh, things that one would, would have done differently with the benefit of either hindsight or more significantly more resources. Um, on the other hand, there was only so much that could be provided. And uh, as you will know, the British didn't have, I mean, they, they brought in conscription shortly before World War II started, but they didn't have, in effect, a long period of, of uh, peacetime conscription in which to uh, um, recruit support. You know, recruit, as it were, the support of troops that were going to be well-trained. That's what I meant, sorry. Well, the, the armed forces are having to adapt within a wider political and diplomatic framework set by uh, the politicians. But I, I wonder perhaps if you could uh, um, identify who you see as some of the, the key uh, military thinkers and uh, the, the most influential figures within the, uh, within the armed forces in terms of, of driving uh, innovation, whether technological or, or uh, tactical or strategic. Well, I made quite a lot in my book because I, uh, one of my books, I can't remember which one here, the one I think on, on uh, of the, um, uh, you know, of the um, Massingbird, you know, the, um, the, the Montgomery Massingbird, who was uh, chief of the Imperial General Staff, because what I saw from his papers was um, a continued commitment to the need to balance uh, innovation with the maintenance of um, existing weapon systems and in particular um, artillery. And I think that we are often prone to adopt a new technology um, um, sort of settles everything approach. And actually that's not true. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that um, the greatest killer of World War I uh, was uh, artillery, uh, and probably the greatest killer of World War II is artillery um, uh, as well. Um, um, and, you know, I've got here a quote from Montgomery Massingbird from 1960, sorry, 1936, when he had just stepped down. Um, he says this, um, I feel that the biggest battle that I've had to fight in the last three years is against the idea that on a 
count of the arrival of air forces as a new arm, the low countries are of little value to us and that therefore we need not maintain a military force to assist in holding them. He's talking there about the British Expeditionary Force, the army. Quote, the elimination of any army commitment on the, count, on the continent turns uh, sounds such a comfortable and cheap policy, uh, especially among the air mad. Now, <laughs> I, I think it's reasonable to say that um, privately, a lot of the correspondence, you'll get exactly the same with the other powers, don't be un under any illusions. A lot of the correspondence is pretty strident. But of course, it's very difficult. I mean, you use the term, um, um, you know, turning to a new uh, technology. But the problem is new technology is not necessarily going to give you success in the war. Um, a great example of that is the, the states that invested most in rocketry. And it's generally argued, there's a very good book on this by Neufeld, uh, that the investment was a very poor return. And that's Germany, of course, with the V1 and the V2. Um, so you've got to be very cautious about this. Or again, here's another quote. This is from Sir Ronald Adam, the deputy chief of the Imperial General Staff, writing three years after Montgomery Massingbird. So he's writing in May 1939. The crisis in September 1938, so he's referring to the potential of war over uh, Czechoslovakia, emphasised the danger in the assumption that a continental commitment was to be given a low order of priority. It also focused sharply the fact that even when the programme was complete, our forces would be inadequate for a major continental war. Well, of course they would be. The British were also trying to um, man and equip the largest navy in the world. They were trying to man and equip um, the um, very difficult to work out exactly how best to compare a heavy bomber with, say, a dive bomber in terms of their capability. But you could say for the British, the largest air force in the world, or certainly the strongest air force in the world. I mean, the, the Soviets did have a lot of planes, though. Um, and they're supposed to be also doing an army. So it's very unclear in this context how best um, to, uh, to determine what you should be spending your money on. Um, uh, I've always argued that the most underrated um, weapon of World War II is the anti-tank gun, um, because at relatively cheap cost, rather like a shoulder-held uh, surface-to-air missile, um, it can actually uh, negate um, a tank. Um, do a lot of damage to it. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that I think is a perfectly reasonable proposition. You know, if you'd asked me, I'd have probably been spending more money on anti-tank guns and making them more mobile. But, you know, there are a whole host of issues that, um, that commanders at the time would have had to consider. Well, we'll have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Uh, but uh, Professor Jeremy Black author of Avoiding Armageddon. Thank you very much for taking us through some of the challenges that the British Armed Forces faced in the interwar period of the 1920s and 1930s, and we'll uh, pick up subsequently with uh, the Second World War. Yes, which is not easy as a topic, and I think, um, I do think, I mean, from looking at the point of view of the British, I do think we need, um, people do need, if they want to listen to us, to, as it were, move away from what I call the 
airport newsstand books, not that anybody's going to airport newsstands these days, and try and read books which actually deal with the uh, problem of matching capability to strategy rather than treat, treating capability as a free-floating variable. I think that's very important if you want to understand military affairs past, present or future. Professor Black, thank you very much indeed. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.